Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Okay. I think I've turned on every little pack that they've given me to record this. do want you to know that if this is your class and you decide it's worth your time and come back next week, or if you can't come back a particular week, every week's going to be recorded and you can get it on podcast. In fact, the classes that are offered tonight, uh, most of the classes, like three or four of our options, that you may have said, well, well, I would like to have gone to Jason French's class, or I wanted to go to this class, or I wanted to go to both. You can listen to those by just subscribing to our podcast. You can go to our webpage, you can go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use. And so those would be available. They normally come out uh, Thursday afternoon, no later than Friday morning. So if you miss a, a week, just catch up. And the uh, handouts, you don't have to wait uh, till Wednesday to get the handouts. You can go to our, what are they calling it now, our resource center. Just go through the cafe to that hole in the wall. It's got the mall screen. You know, they pull down at night when they log it up. If you go back into that room, all of these handouts from Sundays and Wednesdays and Sunday mornings are all available there so you can catch up. Okay? Well, I'm glad you came. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, for those of you that are arriving late, please fill out one of the cards and just leave it in the middle of the table. Uh, our staff would just like to know uh, who's here and who we can communicate and how we can do that. So that information is helpful to us. Um, what are we going to try to do over the next 10 weeks? Uh, the intention of this class is, how do you know you're progressing in spiritual maturity? I think it's a fair question. How am I doing? Uh, my wife and I always have this running joke. I ask her, how am I doing as a husband? And she says, oh, you're sweet. It's not answering my question, which answered my question, right? I understood by the way she said it that I'm like, I got some work to do. How do you measure whether you're spiritually mature or not? Do you, do you measure it by the people around your table? I know this is awkward for those of you that are sitting two at a table. Do you look at the guy next to you and go, I'm better than him? Is that what, is that, is that what you're after? Uh, my father used to tell his four sons whenever we were trying out for a sport, he, he said, here's the most important thing. Get a jersey, get a position, and then get on the field in that order. Get, get a jersey, get on the team, make the team. Second of all, work hard to get a position that the coach can trust you in, and then work harder than the guy who's got that position so you get to play. That was some pretty profound teaching from my dad. Spiritual maturity-wise, you're on the team. Jesus gave you the jersey. Do you have a position? Are you getting to execute what you're designed to do? Are you getting a chance to use your skill? Hopefully, by the end of 10 weeks, we will have processed together what this looks like. Some of it, like tonight, will kind of be big pictures, but don't panic. It's not going to be all theory. We're actually going to have some conversations Uh, toward the end of each night about what does this look like for you. But what I'd like to start with tonight, and I know some of you can't see the screen because of the width of the room or the board here, but and I'm just going to ask you to participate. And let me, uh, when you uh, yell your answer out, if two or three of you yell at the same time, just wait. I'll I'll get all of you on here. When you look at a church and you look for signs of maturity in a church, what makes a good church? Without worrying about whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, how does our culture evaluate a church and its effectiveness? How many people are people? People, outreach, friendliness. Friendliness. Okay, Bob. What do you mean by growing? Go, Go ahead. Okay, so 
not only numbers, but increased numbers. Discipleship. Okay. So we said kids. What about kids? Numbers. So it's not just kids, right? But it's whether the programs are good. Service. Service. Give me an example. Please, that was a command. <laughs> Give me an example. Okay, so we call that, I'll just use a term we use, impact. Whether you're having an impact. There, there's a great expression that those of us professional Christians talk about all the time. If Christ Church of Orinogo closed next week, would anybody in this town who didn't come here on a Sunday miss us? If we stopped existing, would anybody notice? Or just the people who drive out here and fight the traffic? So, impact. Leadership. How is that demonstrated? Okay. I'm just going to use that big word, vision. Back to the leadership. Okay. So you're looking for exemplars? Like someone who just actually, that guy gets it and that she gets it? Okay. I like that. Facilities. Interesting. We look like the Orinogo Sam's Club, don't we? You drive out here and you go, what in the world is that box? They have a Sam's Club out here. Pardon? Willingness to... Serve, okay? So, uh, and I'm going to put participation. Okay. Let's jump over here because the board's semi-full. When you look at a person who's spiritually mature, a person who's effective, how do you know that? What are you looking for? What do, what do people look for when they look for those exemplars? Example. Give me... Yeah, they lead by example, but what would you want them to see them leading? Give me an example of what leading by example does. Okay. Use a good Bible word. What else? They've got it together. What does that look like? I'd like to know, really. Everything seems to go right in their lives. All right. Help me with an expression for that. I know what you're saying. Help me for one word that. Joyful? Okay, yeah. Joyful uh, in spite of. I like that. What else? How do you know someone's got it together? Humble? I would tell you that's a great answer, then I'd ruin it, right? That's a great answer. Fantastic. You're the best. What else? Satisfied. Satisfied. Content? Yeah. Charitable? Look at you guys. Okay, I'm going to use the word I'm looking for when I talk to people. Do you want to be engaged? Selfless? Self-controlled? Yeah, or disciplined? Okay, let's play my little game here. Ready? You knew you were being set up. When it comes to churches and spiritual maturity and accomplishing what the Lord has put in front of us, I want you to holler out, and don't be disrespected if it's your answer because you answered correctly. Remember the question I asked you was, how does the world evaluate these things? Looking at this list, what on this list is nowhere to be found in the Bible as a standard of spiritual maturity? Pardon? Facilities. Programs? Numbers? 
I'm going to make some of you upset with this. It's the difference between friendliness and hospitality. People are friendly when they walk by on Sunday. How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. And they walk away. Hospitality is actually waiting around to find out if they are okay. What about impact? What about leadership and vision? What about exemplars? Any of these things that remain up here? That's, I know you probably can't even read. You're like, I think I know what you... This is service and participation. Anything else needs to go? I think we did better on this side, didn't we? What on the people side? Faithful example, content, selfless, joyful in spite of, humble, engaged, charitable, self-controlled, disciplined. Anything up there not biblically a sign of either the fruit of the Spirit or the life of a person who's been sanctified? So what's interesting is we really understand what a spiritually mature person like looks like. But our culture has taught us that a group of spiritually mature people appeal more to the crowds than they do the king. So in the church world, we like to say that churches are evaluated by the ABCs. Attendance, buildings, and cash. You put a group of preachers in a room, and I'll tell you the truth. Here's what they'll ask. How large is your church? How many services do you have? How big is the staff? How many people come? And the Bible has zero, zero signs that that means anything. You can draw a crowd easily. Right? It's really simple. In my 10 years in this area, I can tell you right now that I've seen churches do some pretty amazing, and I mean both good and bad, amazing things to draw a crowd. Um, now, this is a crowd. There's a lot of young people in here, but there's some of us that are 50 and older. Do you remember the Friends days back in the 80s where there was a big technique to get you to invite one friend to church on a particular Sunday, and the preacher would preach a good Sunday or sermon that week so that that person would go, I'll come back here. How, how well did friend days work? Any of you remember those, or am I the only person? Occupationally, I lived in that. All right. So Becky remembers. Did it work? No. Uh, what are the things do churches do? Well, tennis buildings and cash. How many people come? Uh, I used to define this, and you've got to remember, I'm telling you I'm a preacher, so I've been doing this for 32 years, so I have a lot of cynicism that boils inside of me that I have to suppress. We used to say you can find out the size of a church, have a paint day. Have a pancake breakfast, you'll get hundreds of people. Have a paint day, you'll get nine. And those are the ones you can count on when the storms come. So what am I trying to teach you? Spiritual maturity cannot be defined by popular culture because then we get it backwards. Then the biggest church in town must be the best church. And the most popular preacher must be preaching the truth. And the largest attendance and the biggest campaigns and the largest building supplies and all of that. Now, I'm saying that as, as the largest church in this area. But I know for a fact by meeting people that there are people who come here. Why? Because we're the largest church in the area. And unfortunately, that doesn't make you spiritually mature. And people can come and sit in these chairs all over this building every Sunday for year after year after year and never, ever decide for themselves to grow into this. So what we want to do in this class is I want to take you to Scripture. Now, Peter Buckland has taught in this room two of the last three semesters, and in his teaching, he talks a lot about those practices, Lectio Divina and memorization. This is not going to be that. This is actually going to be what does the New Testament say God is looking for in people? And what I want you to understand is when we get spiritual maturity right in our lives, our churches become spiritually mature.
We're unfortunately, I think, in America, if I can editorialize for a moment, we have flipped it around and we want the church then to be spiritually mature without its people being spiritually mature. That's like having a garden with bad plants and expecting to have a harvest. You're not getting any tomatoes if all the tomato plants are dead, no matter how good the soil is. Are you with me? All right, so now I've debunked everything we evaluate a church by. So at the end of this 10 weeks, you need to ask yourself the question, is Christ Church of Orinoco a good church? And how would you define that? I like to do something in my class at Ozark Christian College. I like to ask the students, especially the preacher boys, I like to ask them what their job description should be. And you'd be surprised at kids that are being trained for ministry who can't answer. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They just assume they're supposed to do whatever they're told. But if the person's telling them what to do, don't know what they should be doing, then what are they going to produce? Absolutely nothing. If a gardener is told regularly, just keep tilling the garden, how, how effective will that garden be? Now, there's a time to till, there's a time to plant, and there's a time to harvest. And if you don't get those in order, you've messed it up. What does spiritual maturity look like? Well, I want you to, to pull out your notes. And as we proceed in this, I want you to look at that Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. There will be some times you will need your actual scriptures in here. And for some of you that have different translations, it would be beneficial to open your Bible to that text and compare it. I'll normally use the New International Version on Sunday mornings and in this class. And I'll normally use the 1984 version. I know some of you have bought the 2011 version. They've made some changes in how they translate some things that I don't think are quite as accurate. They're politically correct. I just don't think they're as accurate to the original language. And so you may have a different translation. Some of you will actually, how many of you have the King James Bible in front of you tonight? Great. I'm going to need you in a little bit. Because there's a translation issue that I like better than the King James. It makes a better point for me. That's okay. As long as it's King Jim, we'll be okay. So Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 17, come follow me. What prerequisites does it require for you to follow Jesus? What skill set do you have to have? What preconditions and training and education do you have to have to follow Jesus? Absolutely none. He went after fishermen. They had no theological training. They were hardworking men, and he called them to follow him. Now, the only, I was kind of a trick question, the only prerequisite you need to follow Jesus is to actually get up and follow him. So what if Jesus had said, follow me? I wonder how many times he said, follow me, and he wasn't followed. But Mark records, chapter 1, that the first thing Jesus did was say, follow me, and they got up and left their nets and followed him. There's three questions, and I know I said no group projects. I just want you to, I'm only going to do this tonight. I want you to get used to one another. If you don't know the people at the table next to you, this will give you a chance to just have a brief conversation. But I want you to write down on your paper and then share if you feel comfortable for the next few moments. What have you left behind to follow Jesus? What have, what have you left that you missed? And what have you left that you never missed? In other words, when you decided to become a believer in Jesus, you decided to become a Christian, what were some of the things you feared you'd have to leave behind? What did you actually have to leave behind? What are some of the things, and I know this is an awkward question, but let's be honest with each other. What are those things you somewhat miss? And what are those things you're like, I thought I'd miss it and I never thought of it again? So we're going to take about five or six minutes Answer those. You can jot down answers. Be thoughtful about this, and then I'll give you a second around your table to share an answer to one of those three questions. Okay, so let's, let's think through these questions. 
Uh, first of all, you should ask yourself, why am I being asked this? Because discipleship that doesn't cost us anything is unappreciated grace. Okay, think, think through that with me. Unappreciated grace. We can probably all remember back to being a kid and we received a gift from somebody and it was an amazing gift. We never thought anybody would give it to us. It was either expensive or, or special or sentimental and we held on to it. And we were just appreciative that someone thought of us so much. That person doesn't need to work hard to draw from us a positive reaction, good words, kindness, responsiveness, right? Uh, yet we've also received gifts that, like my mom, <laughs> she'll hear this and be mad, uh, my mom is now telling me what my favorite foods were growing up. She has me confused with one of my other brothers. And no matter how many times I tell her, no, Scott loved your meatloaf, I loved stroganoff. She's like, no, meatloaf was your favorite. Like, mom, I might remember. <laughs> and if you say peas, we're putting you in a home, okay, because it, you, you've forgotten who I am, right? So I try to be sweet to my mom, but we always have this rub. But my mom will say, and she'll say, well, why do you love stroganoff? And I'll just tell her how I'd come home from football, and there'd be these noodles ready, and this rich, creamy mushrooms and meat chunks, and she'd pour it on there and give it to me after two or hours of football practice, and I would wipe out the whole pan. And then she'll smile at me like, you do like it. Right? There was a moment that connected us there. It had nothing to do with the recipe. You're with me, right? It had to do with she knew what my favorite food was. I was starving, and she gave me the best. So when you think about discipleship, I don't want people to feel guilty, but we have to measure this out. The American church has made discipleship an option for people who attend church. And it doesn't make any sense. Discipleship is the reason you should attend church. Because it aids you, it supports you, it encourages you, it surrounds you with other disciples. So the reason I'm asking you these questions is not to make anybody feel guilty, but around your tables, uh, what were some of the poignant things said about what you left behind to follow Jesus? This isn't boasting to, to answer the question. So if it is something that you gave up, the old lifestyle? How many of you lost... Let's just put it this way, a family relationship, like a depth of a family relationship because you followed Jesus. Did Jesus tell that would happen? He absolutely did. Well, there I am. Uh, What else might people have given up to follow Jesus? Friends? Friends? Yeah, oh yeah. You lost connection and social standing. I met with a young man today, and I'll be meeting with him tomorrow, who's graduating from Pitt State. He's in the ROTC. He's given four years in trade for school. And uh, he went to North Carolina, and he was telling me that his, uh, I don't know what the terms are, his commissioned officers that were training him told him, even though he's a Christian, if he wants to be a good leader in the military, he's going to have to go to the strip bars. He's going to have to drink with his friends. He's going to have to act like one of the boys so they'll respect him. Talk about an upside-down world. And he's asking me, what should he do? It's like, yikes. And I said, your faith is going to cost you something. Don't ever think that God doesn't love you because faith costs us something. What else have people had to give up? Control? That's a big one. It's a massive one. Am I the only person in the room who likes to order his day and make sure it goes exactly to accomplish my my goals only? Okay. Uh, What have you left that you've missed? What is something that following Jesus has cost you that you deep down inside realize, I, I missed that? I think somehow 
Yeah. Can be good things while we were in, in that situation, but then we left it because they were bad to begin with. But, yeah. You know, like I came from the Catholicism and it was very, very dark, but I loved okay. it for the time that I was there. And yeah. it was a bad thing. So when I moved, I left something that I liked, but it was like. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there are some things that get us through. Some things, I think Paul would say it's like the milk to meat. There are certain things that were useful, but you left them behind. It's, uh, how many of you have seen the Christopher Robin movie? You, you, you must. It actually is pretty powerful. If you have kids or you were a kid, okay, so that should cover most of us. Uh, but it just talks about leaving behind things from our childhood. It makes a poignant point that leaving them behind doesn't mean that they didn't have value to us. It just simply means... I'm at a stage in life that I need to go on to meat rather than stay on milk. And there are some things, and let's be honest, there are certain things we did to placate our lives right before Jesus, made us feel good, got us through the day. And is missing those appetites? It's not wrong to say, I have to sacrifice. That's why Paul said, I buffet my body. I beat my body every day so that I can call on to something greater. Um, well, what I think happens in, in ministry is you talk to people who have gone from darkness, I love your term, they've gone from the darkness into the light, and they no longer want to speak of the darkness. Well, as long as you're not praising the darkness. But your story of where you've been will resonate with someone in this room, and they'll go, you too? And all of a sudden, there's a connection that God uses to draw us into community. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, third question, what have you left that you never missed? Well, we could spend all night on that, I hope. I hope there's a few more answers to that. Um, one of our elders has a, a powerful story. I wish everyone got this. They, they don't. I'm, we deal with people regularly who struggle with this. But we had an elder who made a decision to follow Jesus and never had another drink of alcohol. And he will tell you he was a borderline alcoholic before. He didn't do anything without drinking hard and long. And he said the moment he accepted Jesus, he lost the taste for alcohol, dumped it all down in the river, and moved on with his life, has never had another drink before. I wish that was a common story. And, but he'll tell you his story, and it's not like, look how strong I was. It was like, God did a work in me. And when we look back, I think one of the things we need to do regularly is review our lives and remember where we were. Sometimes people get down on themselves because they don't feel like they're doing enough. But if they would just look back 30 days, they'd realize they're in a much better posture than they were 30 days ago. There's something about God working slowly. I'm, aren't we glad, this is a preacher phrase on Sunday that no one ever answers, right? But, but aren't you glad God's more patient than you are? And he's more tolerant of understanding how hard this is than we are of ourselves. Okay. So Matthew 28, verse 18, answers a question for us here. Now remember, I gave you the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus called them to follow him. Now he's leaving, and in Matthew 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So the two questions I want to ask you here is, what is the challenge he gave us? There's a challenge, and then there's a promise. Every time Jesus talks, there's a challenge, and there's a promise. The challenge is what? Make disciples. The promise is what? Yeah, you won't do it by yourself. Discipleship is not a, I do it on my own to prove to Jesus I'm better. You go, make disciples, and Jesus promises his presence always. So, what does the world not understand we are here for? Discipleship. 
Now, one more group game, and then we'll get after it some more. What is a disciple? You have one minute for your table to come up with a profound, deep answer. Go. All right, what is a disciple? Just give me descriptors. Anyone? A teacher? Follower? Encourager? I heard leader? Disciplined? Pardon? Mentor? I'm, I'm looking out here and seeing some of Web City, Carl Junction, and Carthage's finest instructors. <laughs> what do you all do? You disciple your classes, right? Do you ever see it that way? You may not disciple them toward Jesus. You disciple them toward a curriculum. So a disciple is a learner. Primary answer of discipleship is that this person is a learner. Paul will introduce another concept of how we make disciples. We are learners who imitate. All of those answers are good, but some of them are byproducts of what we're talking about. A discipleship is a learner who imitates. So a disciple, you, to be a disciple, you must be discipled. So you put yourself at the feet of a teacher. The educational system back in the day of Jesus was interesting. I would take my son, Braden and I would give him to an instructor. I would give him to a mentor. And that mentor would take my son away and bring him back years, well, Braden, decades later, and would bring him back to me polished and ready and trained to go. It said that Jesus worked with Joseph and was a carpenter's son. His father discipled him. Fair? Every single person, and this is the part that I love as a pastor, every single one of you has discipled somebody. Every single person. So when Christians go, I don't know how to disciple anybody. Yes, you do. You're just not understanding yet how to disciple them into maturity. How many of you were taught to bake by a relative? They discipled you. How many of you taught to fix an engine or to work in the garage? I like this. Bake and fix an engine. Fantastic. Yeah. When you learned to ride a bike, how'd you learn? You imitated someone who knew how to ride a bike and they gave you instructions and you did what? You did what they said. The problem with discipleship in the Western culture is that we don't like being told what to do. And especially in the culture today, tell someone that this is the only way to do something and how do they respond? Really? In staff meeting on Monday, Matt Gilchrist said something funny. He's like, any... uh, He said, anytime anybody tells him this is the way you have to do it, he said his first reaction is, game on. (laughs) Which is so humble, you know, and open. That's why we're all pastors, right? So if we are to disciple people, discipleship is having learners who imitate. Remember what Paul said to one of his churches? Imitate me as I what? As I imitate Jesus. Do what Jesus says. Dallas Willard says the best definition of a disciple is, When Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. You want to know you're a disciple of Jesus? Do what he says. Try it. Trust it. Experience it. 
So I gave you a, little, a few notes down here. Uh, notice some of the, the relevance of this term. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. The word Christian three times. The word believe twice. And the word baptism only 89 times. Yet what gets spoken more in the assembly? Words like believe and faith. And, but why do we do those things to become disciples? So I don't want to turn this in for those of you that are wondering if we're ever going to get to our topic. Remember I said tonight's going to be just a bit more theoretical. But you have to understand that the Bible has been discipling all along. Discipleship is not a new thing. It was a common thing. In the day of Jesus, a child would be given to a mentor, a philosopher, a rabbi. That rabbi would train that student up and instruct them. And when they were ready, they would return them home. I really love the English system of education, especially when it comes to the doctoral programs, is it's not course-driven that you will put yourself under a professor and that professor will groom you and shape you and cause you to read and think and answer questions. And when they're, when they're positive that you've learned, they will turn you loose and deem you educated. There's nothing wrong with the American system except at the doctoral level, you end up taking class after class after class and there doesn't seem to be any mentoring. It just seems to be more information, more information, more information, which is a flaw because there's a lot of smart people who don't know what they're talking about because just have not experienced it, have not tried it. So, discipleship. If the word discipleship is used in the New Testament over and over and over, what does it look like? So where do we get our qualifications for the ideal disciple? If we had more time and we don't, we'd spit out some answers again, but I think you're tracking along with me. Uh, How do we pick people, and how do we, we look at those who might be discipled? I think we get it backwards. I want to take you right to Matthew chapter 5. This is what I think Jesus is doing in part with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want to be able to show you here is that there are four passive. So there are four passive qualities of those Jesus talked about in his kingdom. And this is where you get to fill in some of those blanks. There is spiritual inadequacy. Spiritual inadequacy. It's found right there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what I want you to notice about the passive qualities are the first four, I believe, in the Beatitudes are different. Now, you have to hear me out and try me this, because it's going to be contrary to what some of you may have been raised to believe. And so just listen, and you don't always have to agree with me, but at least test it to see if there's any validity to it. That what happens with the Beatitudes is we turn them into things we have to do. I think the the first four... Our, is our temperament and our acceptance. So would you agree with me that the person who feels spiritually inadequate, the person who is poor in spirit, in other words, they don't think that they're all that. The person who's actually experienced life and realized, I've got a lot to learn, I've got a lot to grow, and I'm not good at being good. Would you agree that that person is more easily discipled than the person who's got it all figured out and is doing the church a favor by participating? This is what spirit, being poor in spirit is. The person is open to the fact that they're spiritually inadequate. They cannot save themselves. How did Jesus respond to every single person who asked him to help them? He helped them. What did he do? How could he walk by the crowd over and over and over? How could he be so harsh with the Pharisees? They didn't want what he was offering. He didn't spend his time. Remember, he said a physician doesn't come for the healthy. A physician comes for those who are sick. So instead of us going out and poor-mouthing life, I'm just not good at this. Now, I I talk about my family way too much. It's all I got. 
Having two boys completely different, it's fascinating to experience growing up with both of them, where Alex would always be harder on himself, but he would never talk about it. If he had success, Alex's temperament was always, uh, I got to do better. I can be better than that. I got to do better. And he was self-driven. And so when we would drive home from games, there was very little coaching or commenting. I'd say, it was a nice tackle. He's like, yeah, uh, I could have more though. I'm like, I like you. Braden, on the other hand, will have success and then poor mouth it. He's a junior high kid, right? So he's like, well, I had three tackles, but they weren't that awesome. And he's waiting for me to go, you're the most amazing kid ever. <laughs> and I don't play that game, but his mother plays it gloriously. Heather will be like, oh, Braden, you were amazing. Three tackles, that's awesome. I'm looking at him going, knock it off. You're begging for compliments. I said, remember when I told you in the car I was really proud of you? He goes, yeah, that's where we're done. Because right now, if I feed you anymore, you're going to be walking around going, I'm the next Dick Butkus at Webb City High School. I'm like, nah, probably not. Okay, so spiritual inadequacy, how does Jesus respond? To those people who know they need him. Second principle, spiritual contrition. What does contrition mean? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Did you ever see Jesus mourn in the New Testament? Answer will be yes. When did he mourn? Lazarus' death? Over the city of Jerusalem? When he was heading in for the Passover, knowing this was the week? Any other times you saw him mourn? In the garden? Little girl died? Talitha kum, little girl get up? Remember? He kicked out all the false mourners, all the professional wailers, and he stayed with the ones that were really weeping. What does it mean to be mourned? It doesn't mean to walk around with this cloud over your head. We're not supposed to be Eeyore. What it means to mourn is, is to see the world the way God sees the world and understand how dark and broken it is. It's to have what the psalmist would call a heart of compassion. So Jesus isn't saying, walk around like, everything's horrible, my life's ruined, I can't stand, I just want to go to heaven. He's not talking about faking that. He's talking about actually looking at life, and when you read things in the paper, and I was trained by my dad and my mom wonderfully, and I hated it. I would be every kid in the world who rolled their eyes every time their parents did something. But my parents were really good when an ambulance or a fire truck or a police officer went by with their sirens on. My parents would stop the car and say, Mark, please pray for whoever they're going to see that they get there in time. I never had that worldview. My whole thought was, wow, that's really big and fast and loud. And they were like, no, no, they're rushing to help someone who right now is, they can't get there fast enough. And it doesn't make me a good person, but what it did was start creating my hard heart, a softness that somebody's in crisis right now. And one time uh, I was with a friend and this guy came up right behind him on the highway and was just bumping him. And he was doing the, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to slow down. He doesn't need to be driving that fast. And Instantly, I became my dad. I looked at him and I go, how do you know he's not rushing to the hospital right now to be with a loved one who may be in crisis? And he goes, geez, preacher. And he pulled over. I was like, I just became my father. Right? This morning, it has to be ingrained in us, but how did Jesus work with people who understood the darkness of this world and the heaviness of it? He responded to them over and over and over. Look at how he responded to Mary on the cross. I mean, no one's having a worse day than him. And he looks down at John and her weeping, and he has compassion on her. He says, John, take care of her. That's a beautiful moment. Third thing, spiritual humility. It 
Blessed are the meek. Gentleness, supportiveness, comfort, and leading without overpowering. Those are some definitions of humility. It's not, not thinking of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself more than other people. It's knowing what you're good at and what you're bad at. Isn't it funny? The older we get, uh, we could probably be more useful. We just don't get on anybody's team anymore. Because now you actually know what you're good at and what you're bad at. Before, when you were a kid, you could do anything or you could do nothing. There seems to be extremes in children. Either they believe that they can fly and they're Superman, or they believe they're not worth anything. It's a shame, because somewhere in between is the reality. What Jesus does with humility is he responds to humility. The only, this is interesting to me, the only disciple who ever find Jesus rebuking was who? Remember, he was training them. They were learners to imitate him. The only disciple we have record of him rebuking was who? Peter. Thomas. Did he rebuke Thomas? No, he just presented evidence. And what did Thomas do without actually touching Jesus? Fell on his knees and cried out, my Lord, my God. See, Thomas's request wasn't doubt. It was a, it was a legitimate request. I saw him tortured and slaughtered on the cross. You're telling me he's alive? But Peter, when Peter was rebuked, all the times Peter was rebuked, how was he acting? proud. He wasn't humble at all. He was telling Jesus how Jesus ought to run things. And Jesus is like, you're acting just like Satan. So when we are self-aware enough to know we need Jesus, to see that this world isn't the way it should be, and humble enough to know that we're not the savior of it, that, that we need to get in on what Jesus is doing, it leads us to the fourth one, which is a spiritual desire. So the spiritual desire clearly says here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I could go into length on that. Psalm 42.1 is one of the favorite. Back when I was a kid at church camp, we used to sing this song a thousand times at campfires. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. As, when have you ever been really, I mean, like thirsty and hungry? We were moving into our house in fifth grade, and we had worked all day, and, and it was all six of us just doing everything we could, and we didn't get lunch, and we didn't get breakfast because we just wanted to get moved in the house that night. And I just remember this night completely, and my mom was frustrated because the, the box of the food got left at our old house, and so she had this meal packed in a box, and we didn't grab that box, and all she had was three cans of Campbell's Chicken and Stars soup. So she made that soup, and I remember this night looking at my mom going, that's the best thing I've ever tasted. And she looked at me and she said, only because you were starving. And I was like, no, mom, that was awesome. Can we have that all the time? Two weeks later, I came home from school. She made me a can of chicken and star soup. Never had another can after that. I was like, that's pretty gross. <laughs> and she's like, no, when you're hungry enough, everything tastes good. You have spiritual desires. And the desires aren't for what the world tells us. It's for what Jesus is offering us. So then we go from passive qualities to social qualities. I'm just going to abbreviate. And there are four of those. You want to know how you open yourself up to discipleship? Pay attention to the Beatitudes. The first one is compassion. Notice that these are social. These are outward. These are inward. These are how we live. So compassionate in spirit, showing mercy, 
mercy is a reciprocating action. When do you show mercy? When you shouldn't. Mercy is defined by giving what should not be given. It's allowing things to go. Uh, Second, purity of heart. Purity of heart is difficult. It's an inward purity, an integrity. It's being transparent to God and confessing your weaknesses. It's striving to ask God to search your heart. I think it's Psalm 139, search my heart, O God, and know if there's any wicked way in me. Reveal it. The third principle is peaceful, and this is, this is interesting. I think it's funny when, how many of you have done the color code? Now we, this church gets mocked because we're the cult of the color code. Not really, but it is instructive and helpful. How many of you have a white, either your first or secondary color is white, peacekeeping? Okay, I relate to you. I'm a red-white, so I'm either all into it or I don't care at all. But peacekeeping, because my wife's secondary color is white and our oldest son's secondary color is white and our youngest son has very little white, <laughs> it's quite a fun home. But what happens is, Heather and I, well, we can tell you this, after we dated for two years and then were mar- or engaged for eight months and then we got married, those first two years, we did all of our fighting in those first two years. And the last 33 years, we've gotten along just fine. That would be a lie. We just don't fight. There's a difference between saying we never fight and we've never had a reason to fight. So how many of you are not peacekeepers because you're trying to reconcile differences? How many of you find yourself peacekeepers because you just don't want to fight? So you sweep it under the rug until you trip over it, right? Because it'll always bite you later. So when I'm talking about peaceful here, I'm not talking about you just don't want to fight. Most human beings that are normal don't want to argue. There are some weird people in this world who try to make everything an argument so they can win, and we don't like them. And if they're, if they're in the room, pray for them. But peaceful is peacekeeping and peace-producing. This is what Jesus wants, is people who disciple so that we can be reconciled back to God. Not just so they don't like us, or not just so they get along, or they think well of us. Does that make sense? The fourth piece is loyalty. Had a beautiful moment Sunday after first hour. I wish you all, I, I can't describe it in words, but so we asked people to come to the table by the baptistry window, and I don't know, how many of you were in first hour? Okay, did you notice a little boy that walked up with his dad? Just so proper. He's seven years old, his name's Juan Keen, walks up to me, very respectful, and I said, what are you here for, buddy? And we sat down in the front chair, and he said, I'd like to be baptized, but I don't completely understand it. And he was just so proper. And he just sat right there, and I said, sit down, let's talk. And I said, so do you understand what the word loyalty is? And he kind of looked at me. And I said, have you ever been loyal to anything? And he goes, probably not. And I thought, dude, let's go to the baptistry now. So anyway, we had a conversation about loyalty, and I said, how about Miss Zoe meets with you and does a little teaching on what it means to, to come to the cross and die for Jesus? That's a big thing for a 70, well, that's a big thing for a 70-year-old, isn't it? What Jesus says here at the end of the Beatitudes is such a hard concept for us to give. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Now, I'm going to be controversial here, not to to be provocative. 
When Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven, please understand that that's kingdom language, not future language. Okay, if you have heaven as a destination you're going to go to that's off the earth, I want to caution you to pay attention to how the Bible defines heaven because it's not a future land. It's actually the new heaven and earth in which God's kingdom will be perfected again, the Garden of Eden revisited. And we can begin to experience that relationship without having to die to get it. Notice what Jesus says. Loyalty is would you be willing to give up everything? The reason I asked you those three questions to start this piece was to understand that Jesus will demand come and die more than he will go and be comfortable. So if we're going to measure spiritual maturity, we start with, are we willing to be discipled by Jesus to become the men and women he created us and will empower? Remember, make disciples, but what was the promise? Yeah. It's not like a teacher. I had a teacher who was not a good teacher, and I found out later. He was a seventh grade teacher. He retired the year after us. I wish he'd retired the year before me. Because he would come in science class, and he would tell us what we needed to do, and then he would go to the smoking lounge. The reason I knew, it has nothing to do with him smoking, but he was supposed to be in our class. But he'd go out and take a lung dart every time we had class and then come in at the last 10 minutes to find out if we did our work effectively. And we all kept our mouths shut because you respect your teachers. And finally, one kid didn't. He told his dad, who happened to be on the school board, and everything got better. I started learning science. But basically, his process was, and he was ready to retire, and there was issues in his home, and it's all okay. You know, I I passed. But as a teacher, I wanted so much more because science was hard for me. I didn't understand all the theories. I needed someone to walk through it slowly. I needed someone to disciple me. My math teacher could have done that, and that came easier to me. English was simple for me. Science just always blew me up. I needed someone to disciple me. What I love about what Jesus offers here is he's not just simply saying, here's a set of rules, now go live your life. He's actually saying, no, I'm going to walk you through each and every one of them. I'm going to give it to you piece by piece. I'm going to be slow and steady with you, so don't put so much pressure on yourself to find perfection. Um, As a pastor, I'll tell you that more people quit the church not because they've had a bad experience, they've disappointed themselves. I tried, I tried to get serious about it, and then I failed. And what I find is the pressure, when people come in and they start opening themselves to Jesus, all of those wounds come back. The bad habits, they cross lines they never thought they would cross. Why? Because it is a spiritual battle we're in. This is not simply just work harder. This is a spiritual battle. That's why Jesus' promise to go with us is so fundamental. Okay, so I want to go through and, and now move from what we do as individuals, or, yeah, what I do, to what we do. And here's the big piece I want you to catch tonight. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, never speaks of your individual walk of faith. He speaks of you and I walking together. It is a communal thing. In the independent world we live in, in America, in a Western culture, I have my own devotional life. I have my own prayer life. I do my own spiritual thing. I hear it professionally all the time. I don't need to go to church. I'm right with God. I love God. God loves me. I do my own thing. One of my best friends in the world was a deer hunter, and I believed him 100%. He said, I never feel closer to God than when I'm in my, my uh, tree stand. And I've been in his tree stand. I'm like, dude, that's awesome. I said, but there are so many parts of Scripture you can't accomplish alone. You just can't. If you look at the directives that Paul gives us to live out our faith, they cannot be done in isolation. They have to be done in community. So the church is awkward, I know. 
It's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's just a mess. But it's still better than trying it on your own. So what we're going to see, just as an introduction tonight, is what is God's plan for our spiritual maturity? It is always in community. It's not in isolation. So people are fundamentally wrong when they say that I don't need other people to follow Jesus. Because Jesus called them, you'll notice, and sent them in pairs always. There's always been this communal point. Now, you may be thinking, I I agree with that. Unfortunately, our culture doesn't, and we're still led so much by our culture. Remember, what makes a good church? What makes a successful church? What makes a good preacher? Funny, entertaining, or on point? And so off we go. So God's plan for producing spiritual maturity. I gave you some lists there. I don't think there's any blanks to fill out. Christ-appointed leaders. Leadership is a spiritual gift, and when it's lacking... The body lacks direction. Think of a military that doesn't have a general with a plan. Think of a ball team that doesn't have someone who's designed and geared uh, to play the position they're supposed to position. A friend of mine coached uh, college volleyball forever, and I used to say to him, what's the most important position you have? And he would just roll his eyes at me like disdain that I didn't know this. He's like, a setter. I mean, he just spoke so, a setter. And I'm like, why is a setter so important? He's going, big girls who can jump don't need to jump if the ball's not on the net. Good point. He'd coach for years volleyball, and he's like, that's the key position. He said, I've had great hitters and outside players. I've had all of this. When I haven't had a setter, we haven't had a chance. And I thought, fascinating. When Paul gives a list of the spiritual gifting in a church, spiritual leadership is not about the person. It's about the gift. So first thing. Second, these leaders have basic responsibilities. Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Leaders disciple people to serve in their gifting. Uh, A a couple of parents back in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, took Heather and I aside when Alex was about two years old. I think they were worried about me and ruining him. And they took us aside and they said, tell us the three things that Alex naturally does. And we just named them. Alex was always helpful. Just very kind to his mom. Never a crossword. I'm sure inside he was cussing me hard. But outside he was just so compliant. And he was the typical firstborn. And so we started naming three or four things that Alex did really well. And they looked at us and they said the mistake they made as parents was they tried to get him to do things he didn't do well instead of just letting him be himself and funnel him toward those gifts. My oldest son is not an upfront person. He could walk on stage and give a better lesson than I could ever give any day of my life. That's the God's honest truth but he's uncomfortable in front of the stage. He'd rather be in that sound booth back there doing lights and everything else, making the rest of us look good. He's just like his mother. If I would have forced him, hey, you're going to do a communion devotion or you're going to lead youth group or you're going to be the president of this, president of this, I could have gotten him to do that. Would he have loved it? Would he have prospered? Would people have enjoyed it? Absolutely not. Gifting matters. Good biblical leadership makes other people more successful. So pardon the sports analogy, But good spiritual leadership are the setters. They get people in position to make the point, to do what they do, and to love every bit of it. Third piece you see there is the results. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, if you don't know it, I would encourage you, if you're not currently in a Bible study right now, would you take a day or two this week and just read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16? Because it is the core of Paul's statement about what we as a group of people need to do to grow into maturity. 
for the edifying of the body of Christ until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to, to a perfect man, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. For the edifying of the body until we all come to unity in the knowledge of Jesus until we're made perfect in him and to the status and fullness of Jesus. So, several pieces. And I intend to move quickly. There's a corporate perspective to this. You need me and I need you. You need the people around your table. Whatever team or concept you have, a family. Uh, My mother-in-law gets mad every time I say this, but it's absolutely true. Heather leads our home as a home. I lead our family as a family. Do you see the difference? So Heather decides what we eat, what kind of food we have, and she doesn't let me grocery shop, and she decides what kind of detergent she's going to use on the clothes, and she decides how the house gets clean and how it gets decorated, and I don't feel like I have been taken down as a man in that at all. She's just better at it than me. And when it comes to our family, she defers to me on certain things, like when it comes to discipline. I don't think she's ever gotten on the boys. She just calls me. And I love both of my boys, but I also, as my father taught me, I don't want them growing up being brats. So when they act bratty, they get talked to. We don't do that in our home. You're with me on this, right? Home and family, what's the difference? It's nuanced, but there's a difference. When you look at your life, ask yourself, what are you really good at and what do you need help with? And chances are, if you're married, you married someone who helped you. You married someone who was just much better. People like my wife. Not everyone likes me. In fact, growing up, not many did. But Heather was like, yeah, because you just say what you think. All right, noted. And people will call her and ask her for advice, and they stay away from me. It's kind of funny. My wife gets more comments at the cafe about what's going on in people's lives than I do get on a Sunday, and I'm here for six hours. And she's like, I'm more approachable. Fair enough. You see the point of team? You see the point of concept? But let's go back to these. If you, this is harsh, if you're having trouble fitting into the body of Christ, the church, it may be because something here is blocking. What happens in America is we make the church about us. Is my church meeting my need instead of my contributing to the success of this ministry about discipleship? So there's an eternal perspective, too. I'll just be brief with this. I could go a long time on this. My tail would wag, but we only got 10 weeks. The book of Revelation gives us a statement. John, now think about John, disciple of Jesus, the last surviving disciple, we believe, all the rest have been killed, not just died, have been killed. John's on the Isle of Patmos. He's, a, he's taken by Rome. He's put there to die or be tried like Paul was. And on this island, when he has to be discouraged and down, he hasn't quit his faith, but he has to say, really, this is what I signed up for? Nothing was working. He has a vision, the revelation. And in the vision, God takes him to a moment that shows him hundreds of thousands of generations of believers worshiping on the throne. Why would God do that to him? Why would God show him that all the way back to Abraham's faith, all the way through the present day and into the future, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of people are going to gather around the throne and sing endlessly, our God was faithful. Why would God show him that vision? Pardon? He wasn't alone, and it wasn't about him. It was that his role was to suffer for the kingdom so that generations, including us, would know the story 
and we would be accepted and receive it. You get it? So there's a corporate thing. Discipleship's not just about me, it's about we. And there's an eternal thing, that God is building his church all over the world. And one of the best things you can do if you ever travel internationally is to find out what's going on in the kingdom wherever you go. I had just a great opportunity because of what I do. I have been able to go to many, many countries in our world. And here's a kid from Indiana who never thought he'd leave the country. And I've got to see Central America and South America. And I've been to India and Japan. I've been to Poland. I've been to Ireland. I've just had great experiences. You know what? The church is doing amazing. In spite of what you read in CNN, the church is growing every day. And what God did was he pulled John out and held him above the history of mankind and showed him in a vision. God's like, it's going exactly like I want it to. And I think we need to be reminded of that. So when you're discouraged and you don't measure up to your own standards, remember God's got this. His kingdom will prevail. Didn't Jesus say the gates of hell will not stop what I'm doing? They cannot stop what I'm doing. So there's three metaphors I'm going to close with tonight. And I've given you some information there, but three metaphors I want to close with. And uh, I want you to think about them for next week because we'll open with them. The first is the marriage metaphor. So the question I need you to answer yourself is this. How is my walk of faith like a marriage? Why would Paul use that metaphor when most scholars believe Paul wasn't married? But the marriage metaphor is profound. So Paul went from a wedding celebration that John saw in Revelation to Ephesians 5.27 that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So I did a wedding for a couple in recently, and I think I've shared this on Sunday mornings, but to me, I, I'm spoiled rotten. and I get to stand at the front of the church and watch the doors open in the back. I like to watch a father die <laughs> and a groom pass out. And the last wedding I did, I was standing next to this wonderful young man and his girl came out the corner it was an outdoor thing and she turned the corner and he said to me i thought he was playing he said i need to sit down and i was like suck it up buddy we're going and then i looked over and he he needed to sit down <laughs> he was pale and so his best man was his brother and he's like come on stop bend your knees breathe so there all this coaching is going on i'm just laughing because she's coming down she's got tears running down her face her dad wishes he could just back the clock up And his brother's trying to keep the groom from passing out and the whole thing. It's a pretty powerful moment. Paul uses the imagery of the presentation of a bride. And he uses these terms. Read what I've got on that paper for you and tell me if you don't see this here. Tell me when you read, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. And tell me you're not hearing what Jesus said, the blessed people become. So how do you become blessed by Jesus? You open yourself up to this. How do you live out that blessing? You demonstrate it this way. So whether your wedding day was this beatific Hollywood moment or not, Paul says also, and John says rather in Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has come and his wife, the church, has made herself ready. The second is a building metaphor. Now this is not quite as sentimental. It's not quite as aw shucks. But it's pretty powerful. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. I'm going to give you just a minute or two to read that text that's written there. It's the building metaphor. Because when Paul talks about how we're going to see ourselves in the eyes of Jesus as his church, he relates it to a wedding, he relates it to a building. 
So go ahead and read that text. It's kind of weird, isn't it? He's not saying that we, and this is interesting, he's not saying we're the building per se. He's saying we build. So there is something that we provide into the kingdom. And he says that not everything, and this is strange, I'm not always comfortable with it, but not everything we give Jesus has any value. When you were a child and you drew a picture, it may not have been a great picture, but mom and dad put it on the refrigerator or they told people about it. I used to draw my dad pictures. He tells me, I don't remember any of this, but I believe he remembers. He said, I used to draw him pictures and ask him to take it. He worked at United Airlines. My dad was awesome because I never had to go house to house in our neighborhood selling candy bars or toothbrushes for Little League or school or anything. I would just give it to my dad. My dad would take it to work. He'd put it in the pilot's lounge. And when these guys got off airplanes flying in and out, they would just wipe out those candy bars. I never sold anything. My dad did it for me. I was spoiled. But my dad said when I was younger, I used to draw pictures to put up in the pilot's lounge so the pilots would see them. I was pretty cocky back then, too. <laughs> and he would take those. And I said, did you ever post them? He's like, oh, no. They said, I just gave them back to your mom, and she put them in your scrapbook. So there's this building component where Paul, Paul says something fascinating to the Corinthian church because they were arguing about who was most important. And Paul said, no, we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and not everything we offer God ends up true, proving to be valuable. And fire is going to test it. Fire is always judgment in the scripture. What he says is God is going to tell you whether that had value or not. But we're all going to be what? Saved. So what he's saying here is God appreciates the work we do, but not all the work we do. And I'm, I don't think we're going to be surprised to find out that some of the things that we think were awesome and impactful weren't. And some of the little random acts of kindness we did actually built on the kingdom. It's not the big, grandiose moments we have. It's those little everyday moments of being honest, having integrity. I liked on both sides of our church and uh, personhood that people came up with exemplars. They, they live a good example. They, they live out what they say. And, and Paul's telling us. So I'm going to ask you to think about it. How is my relationship with God like a, a marriage? And how is it like me being a builder on his project? And then the last one is a walking metaphor. This is one of my favorites. A walking metaphor. And I think this is powerful because they walked everywhere. So the image of the walk is a daily thing. It's not a sprint. It's not a fast drive. Uh, I ordered a book today that I read. If you guys haven't done, if you're doing right now media, I want to encourage you to watch uh, a video called Godspeed. You know, (laughs) I know you're like, I don't have any more time to do this. If you get 37 minutes, I don't think you'll hate it. It's called Godspeed. And actually, it was written by a man who was trained for ministry in the United States and ended up going to Scotland for 11 years and serving in a church where his whole role was to walk through the town every day. And uh, N.T. Wright quotes a book that I ordered this morning after seeing it the other day. It's called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. I guess most of us just walking would walk at a three-mile-an-hour pace. And it takes off on Paul's expression that the Christianity is a walk we take every day with God in a direction for a purpose. It's not hurried. It's natural. It's just a casual walk. And I love the title of that book. That's why I want to read it. A Three-Mile-An-Hour God. Slowing ourselves down to notice. And if you watch the Godspeed, I'll be curious next week if any of you get a chance to watch it. If you watch that on Right Now Media, and you can sign up uh, you can contact the office. It's a free account because you go to this church and you can watch it. It wouldn't be the worst 37 minutes you spend in the next week. 
It's just a reminder that we need to take a deep breath. God's got this thing, and we get to participate in it. So how is your discipleship and growth like a walk? How's it like a wedding, and how's it like building? And we'll open with that next week. All right. The other thing I've been asked to tell you um, that we've learned is if you have little people in the children's area, and like if you have them in early childhood area, you can go get them and get out of here. If you have little people in K through 4, we want to be careful when we go in to make sure we're not interrupting their lesson time. So just ask the, the people out front, tell them what grade your, your child is in, they'll tell you if it's a good time to get them or it's a bad. Does that make sense? Because I guess a couple times I've dismissed you all early and you just go get and the kids are like, ah, and then teachers lose control of the classroom. So you can hang out. Uh, I'll be up front if you have any questions. If you have any complaints, save those for next week. If you have any questions, I'll be right up here. And uh, thanks for coming. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.